Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. David Pietraszewski. He is a research scientist at the Max Planck Institute for Human Development. He's an experimental psychologist who applies evolutionary theorizing to social, cognitive and developmental questions. And today we're going to talk about the massive modularity of the human mind hypothesis and about coalitional psychology as well from an evolutionary perspective. So, Dr. Pietraszewski, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much, Ricardo. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, great. So uh, let's perhaps give some, uh, put the massive modularity hypothesis into a historical context. So could you tell us a little bit about where this hypothesis comes from? Sure. I mean, so massive modularity is, um, it's an argument about how to individuate the stuff in the mind. Um, and this is an issue that goes back at least to Aristotle, where Aristotle talked about functions, uh, where he talked about you know, you can think about a house as a place to stay warm from wind and rain and heat, uh, or you can talk about it as a bunch of bricks and stones and wood. Um, and then, uh, and Fodor noted this as well, uh, in the 19th century, uh, a German neuroanatomist Franz Gall um, talked about faculties in the mind. Um, and a little bit later, the explicit notion of modularity uh, showed up in early 20th century developmental biology, uh, also computer science. But really for psychology and for massive modularity, a good place to start is with Jerry Fodor, a philosopher of mind, um, in, uh, had a book in 1983 called The Modularity of Mind. And for most psychologists and philosophers of mind, this was really uh, seminal for articulating what uh, kinds of things should exist in the mind. And Fodor argued that there's things called modules. Um, and we can talk a little bit about what he meant by that. We can just pin that for now. Um, but uh, what had happened was at that point by the 1980s, the cognitive revolution was taking off. People were interested in figuring out how do you individuate the mental entities that we want to talk about that aren't just the behavior of simple things. Um, so there's a real appetite for talking about things, and Fodor's modules became a thing. Um, around the same time, people who were taking an evolutionary approach, uh, typically thought of as evolutionary psychologists, started also, for very different reasons, talking about very specific systems, because they're thinking about evolution, the kinds of problems that the mind should be evolved to solve, um, suggest a lot of specificity. And so they started talking about functional specialization, specific systems or modules. So modularity got combined between sort of Fodor's version and evolutionary psychology's version. Um, the term massive modularity showed up in a 1994 paper by Dan Sperber. And it's basically uh, understood as the idea that there's lots of stuff in the mind, and particularly evolutionary psychologists have this idea that there's not just a few modules, but lots of modules. And the sort of fuzzy idea is that modules are very specific, they're sort of automatic, um, they're mechanisms, and uh, many people to this day still feel like evolutionary psychology goes too far in thinking that the mind isn't just composed of some modules, but it's massively modular. And so uh, it can be seen as a pejorative term uh, or not, 
but that's that's sort of the historical uh, framework. Yeah. Okay, so uh, perhaps tell us what Fodor meant by a module and how evolutionary psychologists traditionally think about it. Sure. So you, one of the great um, quotes is from Don Simons, who says, to understand what somebody's saying, you have to know who they're arguing against. And so with, uh, with Fodor, we can start with that. So basically, um, Fodor was arguing against people called new look theorists, and new look theorists were arguing against behaviorists. So behaviorists thought uh, perception is sort of just like a reflex. It's not super cognitively complicated. And new look theorists like Jerome Bruner were saying, uh, no, I don't think that's right. And in fact, we're going to show you examples of where what we could consider high-level cognition, sort of our beliefs, our goals, affecting even very early stages of visual processing. Um, now, Fodor was very sympathetic to arguing against the behaviorists that perception was just reflex. He didn't like that either, but he thought the new look theorists went too far. So Fodor's idea was that, um, look, for an organism to be well-designed, um, what an organism believes or wants should not affect what it sees, right? Whether or not there's a bear in front of you, you should see it whether or not you want it to be there or not. It's not a good design for beliefs and desires to, to penetrate into uh, what you see. And so basically, Modularity of Mind 1983 book is largely about things he called input systems. Input systems are things like very early stages of vision or hearing that um, he argued are basically immune to the beliefs and the desires of the larger organism. And he had some jargony words like quinian and isotropic, but basically what this just means is that um, the all the kind of propositions like uh, I'm hungry, I'm tired, uh, shouldn't affect how tall the mountain looks to me, right? Um, it might affect layer systems, but like early stages should be kind of own separate isolated stuff. And he called these things input systems. He argued they were a natural kind, and he argued that the most essential attribute of these things is something called encapsulation, yeah. which is this idea that um, uh, the information propositions like I'm hungry or I'm tired um, can't go uh, into them. A really good example he used all the time and other people do too is visual illusions. So for example, you know two lines are actually the same length, um, but you see them as different length. And even though some part of you knows they're actually the same length, that explicit declarative knowledge can't go in and change how you see the lines. And so visual illusions are a perfect example of an encapsulated operational system for Fodor. So input systems are encapsulated. Other people um, included other criteria for modules, but uh, for Fodor, encapsulation was key for uh, input systems. And then input systems, uh, later in the book, Fodor starts talking about input systems are kind of a natural or kind or an example of a natural kind, which is a module. And he says the key to modularity is encapsulation for the reasons we talked about. Um, but they might also have some other attributes as well. They might be automatic, so they might happen outside of your ability to affect them. Uh, they're likely domain specific. Fodor was a little bit fuzzy on what he meant by domain specific, but sort of idiosyncratic uh, um, inputs, um, fixed neural architecture, characteristic breakdown, development, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but basically he was arguing input systems are a classic example of modules 
And he contrasted that with central systems. Central systems are the exact opposite, which is it's things like belief fixation, reasoning, things that propositions can affect um, and where anything that the organism might know or believe might affect the eventual state of the system. For photo, those are central systems. So it's sort of central systems surrounded by modules. So that's photo. Um, we can put a pin in that, and now we can go over to evolutionary psychology. Um, yeah. And so for evolutionary psychology, the background is uh, is a bit different. So for evolutionary psychology, um, and a perfect example of this is a 1987 paper by Lita Cosmides and John Tuby, um, which basically uh, is saying, look, a lot of evolutionary people are trying to understand uh, human behavior or behavior generally. The problem with going directly from evolution to behavior, though, is that natural selection doesn't act directly on behavior. What it does is it designs uh, cognitive mechanisms. Mm -hmm. And so uh, if you think about um, uh, uh, cognitive mechanisms, what you have to do is think about them in terms of their function, how they work, and to solve any kind of adaptive problem like uh, um, uh, kin detection, right? So there's selection pressures for knowing who kin are, for helping, for avoiding incest. That's a set of information processing challenges, what they call the computational um, theory. So computational theory describes the function that some mechanism should be solving. And um, uh, selection pressures are basically computational theories is their argument. When you take that perspective that solving a real world problem like not being eaten, finding something to eat, finding somebody to sleep with, not falling off a cliff, all of these real world specific problems, if you start thinking about those as computational theories, as, as information processing problems, it becomes apparent that very general processes like attention and memory while they might be descriptions of some of the things that are happening, they're not adequate. So it's sort of like describing a car in terms of like, you know, thermodynamics or spring constants. Sure, spring constants are in there, but that's not an adequate description to, de to describe how the thing actually steers or stops or absorbs bumps. So they're being much more specific about what kinds of mechanisms have to be in the mind to solve these specific problems. And when they start talking about these specific systems, they start talking about functional specialization, and then they also bring up the word modularity. When they bring up the word modularity, they're very specific to delineate it from photos usage, but the two do to some degree get kind of mixed together. Um, and in subsequent papers, Fodor even clarifies, yes, I know they don't mean it, but then later he kind of undoes that. Um, and there's a big, I can, we can go into details about why that is. Um, but essentially the Fodorian view sort of gets mixed up with the evolutionary psychology view. Um, and I think that got worse and worse, particularly in the early 2000s up through now. Okay, so uh, I mean, since the early days of evolutionary psychology up until now, what changed in terms of how people think about massive modularity? I mean, is it something central to evolutionary psychology? Is it disputed or not? Well, I mean, I think we'll, we'll part of the answer to that will be when we sort of deconstruct the problem. Um, and I think we will get to that uh, maybe in a little bit. Um, so it really depends on what you mean, though. So 
in one sense, if by modularity you mean a commitment to the idea that you have to be computationally adequate. You have to say that there's enough specificity, there's enough stuff in the mind to actually solve a specific problem, which, which just to be clear, is not unique to evolutionary psychology. So for example, artificial intelligence, um, people like David Marr, Marvin Minsky, mm -hmm. uh, uh, many, many people, um, including modern artificial intelligence researchers, whenever you're trying to solve a real world problem, you quickly realize that there's got to be a lot more stuff in the mind than you would think otherwise, right? Um, so we're kind of erring on the side of thinking too little as opposed to too much. Um, parsimony gets us in trouble. Marvin Minsky called it physics envy, where we want simple parsimonious formulas that's fine for some stuff, but not necessarily for psychology, at least not yet. Um, and so, uh, so in that respect, if by modularity you mean you've got to have a lot of stuff in there to make things work, then it is important and it's always been important and it's still important. Um, if by modularity you mean the more Fodorian kind, where it means something that's automatic, that's encapsulated, Many critics of evolutionary psychology, um, and there's papers I can point to or uh, we can talk about if you'd like, um, uh, understand evolutionary psychology as thinking, well, everything's automatic. Everything is encapsulated. Um, and they'll, the, the, that leads to the idea that the way you test evolutionary theorizing is you see, well, does something like cheater detection or kin detection, is it automatic or is it something that uh, the person's beliefs and desires can affect? Um, that version of modularity uh, is a misunderstanding, but it's extremely prevalent um, up and through today. So, uh, I mean, you published a recent paper, Why Evolutionary Psychology, Psychology Should Abandon Modularity. And you talk about different levels of analysis there where modularity could apply to. So could you tell us about that and why do you distinguish between those levels of analysis? Sure. So the basic argument in the paper is that uh, what the modularity debate is that we've been talking about is like a giant non-funny um, who's on first uh, routine. So for those who don't know, there's a, a classic Abbott and Costello routine where uh, they ask each other, they're having a conversation about who are the players on a baseball team. And the players on the baseball team have weird names like, uh, um, I don't know who. Um, and so when one, of the, when one person asks, well, who's on first? Uh, the response is yes, right? Which, you know, it's confusing. And so they just kind of loop in circles. And so that it plays on the ambiguity of the words. And the argument is that module has uh, also been that, that issue. And so, um, our argument is that the modularity debate has seemed like it's been a, an argument about is the mind massively modular? We're talking about the same thing, a module, and we're just arguing about how, how prevalent it is in the mind and maybe some of its attributes, like is it encapsulated or not? Our argument is that you can't understand the modularity debate unless you understand that, that actually people are not talking about the same thing at all. And in fact, what one side means as modules and what another side seems, uh, understands as modules are actually two different entities that reside at different levels of analysis. So levels of analysis is a really simple concept. It just means levels of reduction or explanation. So very simply, uh, for an example, 
uh, an ice cream cone. You can describe an ice cream cone in terms of how it tastes. You can describe its chemistry. You can describe its physics. So vanilla, the vanillin molecule, and then the physics of the vanillin molecule. None of these descriptions are in conflict with one another, but it's not as if when you draw a vanillin molecule, the vanilla taste sort of goes in there somewhere, right? Like they're they're separate. They're what what uh, philosophers call distinct ontologies. Um, and so uh, levels of analysis not only applies to um, ice cream cones, but also the mind. And our argument following people like Dennett and uh, other people is that there's basically three levels of analysis that people can approach the mind at. The first and the highest level, sort of like the taste of vanilla, is the intentional level. We call it the intentional level of analysis. Um, Dan Dennett called taking the intentional stance. This is the intuitive, everyday way people understand ourselves. So there's a me inside me. Uh, I live up here. Um, I decide to do things. There's sort of stuff that's separate from me, like my arm. I could lose my arm and I'm still here. Um, and uh, I interact with mechanisms. So uh, there's sort of a, um, an internal central agency who works by motivations and beliefs and thoughts and things like memory. Uh, if I can't remember something, it's sort of that memory is separate from me, but maybe I can recall it. So I sort of interface with other things like my arm or memories, but they're separate from me. Um, this idea that there's uh, internal impetus interacting with more physical things is called interactionism in philosophy, and that's central to uh, the intentional level of analysis. A description of vision at this level would be something like, I see parts of a scene uh, effortlessly, but attending to them and searching for things requires some effort on my part. Um, so uh, um, that's the top level. The next level down is the functional level of analysis. This is what Dan Dennett called the design stance. And at this level, there's no longer an internal impetus. There's no longer a sort of central agent. Uh, everything is mechanisms. Everything is defined in terms of function, which uh, for a cognitive system would be information processing. And what we learned from, um, uh, from Turing and people like that is that any information processing system is just a fancy contingency system, meaning there's just a bunch of inputs, processing, and outputs. And so, any uh, description of vision, for example, at this level would be would be something like there's just a bunch of systems, they all have different functions, but at no point does everything come together, at no point is there an I or a me. Instead, there's a system that's doing, uh, attending to differences in lines, attending to differences in colors and contrasts. There are other systems that have those as inputs that generate some scene that system talks to another system for motor control, et cetera, et cetera. So it's basically just systems all the way down. And so when we say something like, I see a scene effortfully, the idea is that um, the I in the intentional level description corresponds to a bunch of mechanisms at the functional level. So there is an I, I experience it, right? But at a functional level of analysis, it's just a bunch of stuff, right? Uh, it's a bunch of mechanisms. Um, so the idea would be if we knew how to impair it, we could actually destroy the mechanisms that give you your sense of an, a unitary volitional self, um, even though at an intentional level of analysis, a unitary volitional self certainly exists. At the functional level, it's a bunch of deterministic mechanistic systems where there's no 
volition working in the systems. There's no unity in the systems. It's just a composite of systems that produce this other emergent phenomenon. So that's the functional level description. And then the bottom level is the implementational level, which is the physical wiring. So this would be visually or some other way actually assessing electrochemically uh, how the stuff actually is physically implemented, which is obviously very important. Like if you design something like a vacuum cleaning robot, um, you can't just give a, a flow chart of the functions, you actually have to physically implement it. And so the same thing is true with the mind. Um, it gets physically implemented and that would be also, uh, Dan Dennett also called that uh, taking the physical stance. And so um, functional, uh, uh, functional is the middle level, the higher level is the intentional, and the lower level is the implementational level of analysis. So, uh, I mean, is, is, is the idea that modularity applies to one of those levels of analysis and makes sense when viewed through that level of analysis and not the others? Is that it? Yeah. So basically the idea is that what Fodor versus evolutionary psychology was, was the analog of two groups of people looking at a, uh, a long rectangular box from different perspectives one group of people looking at the short side, one people looking at the long side, and then arguing about how its dimensions, right? So they are, it's completely useless argument. So the idea is that Fodor uh, is actually operating at the intentional level of analysis. Uh, so for him, a module only makes sense and is only coherent at the intentional level of analysis. Whereas for evolutionary psychologists, when they appeal to modularity, they're referring to the functional level of analysis. So I can unpack that, okay? Mm -hmm. So the critical thing for Fodor is encapsulation. And again, he was arguing against uh, these people who thought, well, propositions can just affect everything, this idea of isotropy. isotropy. So uh, uh, a proposition can just kind of go anywhere in the mind. What Fodor was doing was saying, look, pure isotropy doesn't exist in the mind. There are parts of the mind, modules, where propositions can't go. They're not isotropic. Now, Fodor was really popular. People really massively cited. And I don't think it's because people were interested in issues of isotropy. Instead, what, what our argument is that what Fodor's real contribution is to cognitive science and the history of science generally is he was arguing against a view of the mind where this sense of a you, an internal agency, uh, is not a complete explanation of how the mind works. So people are starting from a point of, well, there's a me. I just do things, it's obvious, it's easy and intuitive. Fodor's saying, no, look, you're not in complete control of your mind because look, when there's a visual illusion, you can't go in and change the length of the line. Right. And so what Fodor's modules were was the codification of phenomena that basically show that where the you is in the mind is restricted. There are areas in the mind that are not you. And this explains all of Fodor's criteria for modularity. Encapsulation is the idea that uh, a proposition is not accessible, which means you can't get to it. Right. Um, because if it wasn't 
um, uh, modular, you should be able to get to it and change your idea about how long the line is. It's why things are fast, why modules are fast, because it takes time for you to do something. Um, it's why they're automatic. So by definition, something is automatic when an agency is not intervening. Um, and uh, there's other things like domain specific, where if you look at the details of what Fodor means by domain specific, he basically means things that should be relevant to you are not in fact. So basically all of Fodor's criteria for modularity only makes sense um, if you understand what Fodor was doing was arguing against a view of the mind that was basically where you are completely in charge. But the thing is, is that what it means is that Fodor is defining a module as the thing that isn't you. So there's a view where there's you, and then there's your mechanisms. It's like your arm or your memory. It's the thing you interface with. Um, for, uh, for evolutionary psychology, though, um, uh, what evolutionary psychologists mean is that what a module is, is everything at the functional level of analysis. So it doesn't matter whether or not it feels like something you can control. It doesn't matter whether or not the phenomenon is encapsulated. It doesn't matter whether or not beliefs matter or not. All of that stuff from an evolutionary perspective is made possible by the um, operation of modules, by mechanisms. And so what evolutionary psychologists were talking about when they referred to modules was everything at the functional level of analysis. And so what happened was um, uh, people misunderstood the evolutionary psychologists. And so they thought, well, what evolutionary psychologists are saying is that they think everything is independent of me, right? Um, they think everything is intrinsically encapsulated. Um, so everything has to have its own bounded computer. Um, and if there's anything that is unique um, uh, to kinship, um, and if there's anything unique to coalitional psychology, um, they have to be completely unique and there can't be anything common to them. And if there are, then it means it's not module, uh, it's not modular and uh, evolutionary psychology is wrong. So basically it was the mixing up of uh, the functional level with the intentional level that, um, uh, that got us in trouble. Okay, so then it makes sense for evolutionary psychologists to keep the idea of modularity, but perhaps clarify it in those terms. That's the argument is that uh, we we mark the level of analysis that, by which we mean it, which is mm -hmm. that uh, this is a functional module. I mean, I actually think uh, modularity also has a more precise meaning uh, in the history of computer science and developmental biology, which is basically hierarchically arranged systems um, where there's sort of more within unit interaction than between unit interaction. And that is uh, coherent at a functional level of analysis, unlike Fodor's criteria. Um, but that's not what evolutionary psychologists mean either. Not everything that's functionally specialized is necessarily hierarchically arranged in this sort of arrangement. And so um, our argument is that it's probably best to avoid the use of modularity because it has a more precise meaning, which isn't always hold, even at a functional level of analysis. And there's the much bigger problem of people typically think it means um, uh, the stuff that isn't you 
at the intentional level of analysis. And because of that history, it's probably best to avoid using the, the term altogether. Basically, anytime you hear people pitting um, uh, um, consciousness versus evolution, reasoning versus evolution, they're making this levels of analysis mistake. They're basically treating the contribution of evolution to the parts of the mind that aren't you. And the argument is that's a complete misunderstanding uh, of how to think about evolution or mechanisms in general. Yeah, that's great. Okay, so uh, let's now talk about your work on coalitional psychology. So what is coalitional psychology, particularly from an evolutionary perspective? Sure. So coalitional psychology basically refers to the systems in the mind that make it possible to represent, uh, reason about, and behave with respect to multi-agent dynamics, right? Which is just sort of uh, um, uh, a bit jargony for the idea that there has to be stuff in the mind for dealing with uh, groups of people. Um, now, from an evolutionary perspective, specifically a comparative perspective, humans and a few other cetacean and primate species are really unique in the degree to which individuals who are not related can join together and cooperate or fight with each other. And so there's sort of a long history of understanding, uh, even before the influence of psychology and evolution, that there's really something to be explained here. The, the degree to which people can cooperate is, uh, is quite remarkable. So there have to be systems in the mind that make it possible to cooperate um, with all these other people. And so basically coalitional psychology is just the blanket umbrella term for that stuff. Um, lots of people, myself included, have started to sort of deconstruct some of the subfunctions of what of how that system might work, but that's broadly what it refers to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what are the kinds of cues that people take in when forming coalitions and distinguishing between an in-group and an out-group? Um, well, it all depends on what you mean by an in-group and an out-group, right? Okay. Um, and this is another. Um, so, uh, in, in, in some sense, the argument is that um, the notion of a group is sort of an intentional level construct, right? Um, and it probably maps onto many, many different things. Um, it's what Marvin Minsky called the suitcase word. Um, and I have a paper actually in BBS right now talking about what is a group and what do we mean by that? Um, so basically, uh, the answer to your question, uh, how does the mind attend to groups, what cues does it use, really depends on what you mean by group. So the idea is that there are lots of collectives that the human brain or brains in general need to attend to for, for fitness relevant reasons in the design of the system. Um, so things like volatile relationships, like is this person in this situation going to help me or hurt me? Um, but there are other categories as well. So for example, um, is this somebody who I grew up with? Do they speak the same way I do? Is this somebody who shares my um, uh, clients of cultural knowledge? So do they dress the same way? Do they share knowledge with me? Um, what a, you can consider if you, depending on how loosely or narrowly you want to talk about groups, you can even talk about things like gender or sex, where is this somebody who's the same sex as me or not? And the idea is that there are lots of lots of systems, all of whom are looking for these certain dimensions that people might vary along. And there are certain cues um, in the environment for, for determining as somebody in one or the other or in a continuum. So for something like uh, sex, biological sex, there's you know pretty well worked out cues and it's pretty apparent what that might be. Um, and this is true in a lot of species. 
for something like volatile alliances, um, it's going to be very dynamic um, because what the alliances are 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 going to change. And also there's an incentive for people to sort of piggyback on alliances they want to be in and for people to get people who don't want those people in their alliances out, right? So, so there's a fashion dynamic. So one example is, um, so like gang members will often mark their gang membership by very via very cryptic things like how they tie their shoelaces. And it's because that, you know, you don't want like the kids who aren't actually members of the gang um, copying the gang marker for protection. Um, uh, so you need to make it a little bit cryptic. And so, uh, um, so the cues are always moving around in some cases. So you can think of these as sort of um, uh, locally contingent sort of things. But then there are other things that are more intrinsic and sort of intrinsic things for who did I grow up with might be something like language repertoire. Um, it might be something like, did I, do I encounter this person a lot, spatial proximity. Um, for gender, it might be physiological things. Um, and for things like volatile alliances, it's gonna be much more uh, developmentally dependent, learning dependent, um, and not necessarily a pre, a readily developing sort of cue. So it's complicated because the the broad category of cue and group are is a heterogeneous set. Yeah. But uh, I, I mean, all the social categorization work. I mean, is there a definite set or, or a determined set of categories that people use for in social contexts? Yeah, I mean, so there's sort of a simple answer and a, and a more complicated answer. The, the traditional answer is there's sort of certain privileged categories that the mind always attends to. So sort of in my some of my social categorization research, um, I've looked at um, things like age and sex. And the argument is that there's sort of a system in the mind looking for age and sex um, because those would be evolutionarily recurrent things that uh, there's specific inferences that are important and relevant. And so uh, part of the categorization procedures in the mind include those as, as mandatory and always happening. Um, some of the work that I've done also um, argued against the idea that race would be a third category. So mm -hmm. from an evolutionary perspective, race is, a, is novel. Um, therefore, it doesn't make sense that there would be systems in the mind whose design is specifically for race, for attending to race. And so the, the research is uh, testing the hypothesis that racial categorization is a byproduct of a system whose function is to attend to volatile alliances. So it's the, it's the learning system we talked about earlier, which is there's a system that has to track patterns of cooperation and competition, and in certain social environments, certain physical features correlate with those patterns. That's what we call race, the system coalitional psychology or alliance tracking, whose job it is to attend to those learned cues, picks up those physical features, and they're important for predicting how people interact. So it becomes a default categorization scheme. But my research, for example, shows that if you show people not um, uh, interacting with one another on the basis of race. So for example, there's two different teams and uh, there's a conflict between them and the constituents of each team are racially diverse such that race doesn't predict who's on what team. Basically the mind uh, has no problem um, uh, not attending or not categorizing people by their race. The exact same manipulation has no effect on sex or age categorization, which suggests that um, 
age and sex uh, categorization are not instances of this alliance tracking system, whereas race is. Um, so that's, that's one way to answer the question about categorization. Um, the more complicated answer, uh, just briefly, is that um, the, the simple answer sort of is very unitary, where there's sort of like me and I'm a social categorizer and what do I categorize by? It's kind of an intentional level description. At a functional level, there's gonna be hundreds of thousands of systems and they're all categorizing by lots of dimensions, right? And so I don't think we really know a whole lot about that, but I, I suspect there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dimensions of categorization. Um, the paradigms that I use to measure very high level categorization like age and sex, um, I think we can start to get at what the what these plurality of mechanisms are categorizing by, um, but I think we don't know the answer to how social categorization works. And I think there's a lot more, uh, there's a, like one, one thing somebody once asked me was, because I've done a lot of social categorization work, is I've started to look at things like accent representation um, uh, and uh, a few other things. And, you know, so it's starting to get into like the five or six numbers and people said, well, surely there can't be like a hundred dimensions that people categorize. But of course there could be, like I said, millions, like there could be systems for categorizing the symmetry, facial symmetry, right? Um, and that there's just a thing sitting there that's just doing that. And uh, uh, once you start having this idea um, of that there's not a single mind, but there's a society of minds as Marvin Minsky put it, um, then the idea that there's hundreds of thousands of categorization processes happening simultaneously is not far-fetched and is probably uh, necessary uh, given what we have to do. Um, so that's the complicated answer, and that one we're just starting to figure out. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let me just emphasize a little bit the aspect of race, because that's something that people, particularly from certain extreme right movements like white supremacists or people like that, I mean, I mean they, they tend to abuse certain knowledge coming from biology, evolutionary psychology, and so on, to say that race is... Uh, category we pay attention to and is is something that we are uh, evolutionarily prepared to pay attention to and to distinguish between people of different races and our race and other races and i mean and that they say that for example in racially diverse societies that's one of the things that explains conflict but right. if i understand you correctly th there's not evidence for that right that's right um so if you take a dispassionate view um, of things um that doesn't uh, make any sense uh so for one thing um if you just look at objective genetic ancestry differences the most ancestrally distant groups of people on earth are africa are in africa so like different mm -hmm. tribes in africa right. are actually the most genetically different people like hadza and other people um and so if you want to just track uh recent genetic ancestry which is very superficial compared to chimps so chimps have five times more genetic diversity than humans do. And even chimps don't technically fall into subspecies. Humans are highly related to one another, very um, 
uh, genetically homogeneous. There's no complicated systems in one uh, and set of ancestors that are not in another. A lot of a lot of what we experience as variation is very skin deep uh, uh, in response to weather and pathogens and things like that. So for one thing, the the visual features that we think of as mapping onto race don't even track ancestry in the sense of for me, I would intuitively consider everybody uh, who everybody um, uh, um, uh, within that within the category black in that folk category would be the most distinct uh, groups of people, right? Uh, or the most ancestrally different. Um, uh, so uh, the 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 apparent racial differences are not tracking ancestry differences. Um, the um, uh, and then places that are more recently founded, like North and South America, um, you get sort of a subset of that African racial diversity. Okay, um, so that's ancestry, uh, whatever. Um, the uh, the issue of uh, whether or not um, we're sort of predisposed to track differences, you can see uh, you can see the this not working out. So, for example. In places like um, uh, the Hutu-Tutsi uh, distinction um, in uh, in the genocidal history, there um, there's absolutely no phenotypic difference. It was just something fabricated, right. um, and so the idea that sort of racial differences require objective physical differences that's sort of a problem for that. Also, what counts as a race differs over time. So in the United States early turn of the century, um, Catholic Irish was basically a race, race um, um, uh, and being Irish was a race, for example. So there's some signs in, in, in school textbook, textbooks about no Irish need apply. Um, so even what counts as a race uh, differs over time. And so if you look at it uh, from an objective point of view, it's not so much that objective physical differences determine what uh, what ends up being race in a local environment, but rather it's things like verbal labels. There's really nice developmental work on uh, kids privilege verbal labels and know to use verbal labels of kinds of people even before they can assign people to the right label, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it seems to go label first. And that's a broader uh, inference and a broader summary of the results, which is that what how the system seems to be set up is it's expecting arbitrary groups, what Jim Sedanius called arbitrary sets, and that those are going to vary locally depending on the circumstances. And so um, it's absolutely the case that when arbitrary sets are demarcated along phenotypic lines, so um, uh, black, white, um, whatever dimensions there are, there's unique social and cultural dynamics that make it hard to get around those. Um, so, you know, one thing I always say is like, you know, I'm here, I'm right now sitting in Berlin, um, you know, in the, uh, during the Third Reich, people were walking around, you know, with swastikas and things. Yeah. Um, they could take those off at the end of the day, you know, after, after the war was over. Um, so a certain kind of uh, alliance markers are not permanent and can be removed. Other ones that become embedded uh, are permanent, and it makes it harder to change those, um, uh, change the dynamics around them because you have to coordinate with everybody. So even if I don't want to interact with somebody, let's say I live in the um, um, non-integrated rural southern U.S. in the 1950s, even if I don't want to treat 
uh, if I'm a white farmer and I have a black friend or something, even if I don't want to treat that person any differently, I have to understand that other people will treat them differently and also treat me differently if I interact with them. And so it becomes this coordination problem. Um, so that's why I think physicalized arbitrary features have a particular kind of unique history and it's difficult to, to change the dynamics around them, but they do change. And my own research shows that uh, the mind has no trouble uh, changing uh, how they're attended to or whether or not they're ignored at all. Um, but it's no harder or no easier than literally changing the social circumstances around them. So the mind is not predestined to categorize by race, whatever we mean by that, but, um, but it's gonna follow the social dynamics and the social dynamics typically involve in-groups and out-groups, however conceived. But it's it's uh, it's ahistorical and a-psychological to argue that um, that race is objective based on physical differences, uh, <laughs> or that um, or that it's causal in that sense. It's sort of the um, the consequence of this alliance psychology. It's not the the locus of causation. <laughs> So from an evolutionary perspective, what is the relationship between coalitional psychology and politics? I mean, what's the relationship there? Yeah, I mean, so that's also, uh, there's a complicated answer, a simple <laughs> answer, I'll give you the kind of intermediate answer, which is um, uh, coalitional psychology is a psychology about making alliances and keeping alliances and friends, which is really important because in our ancestral environment uh, uh, up until very, very recently and still today, except for very few circumstances, it's not like there's police uh, or rule of law. It's just sort of um, uh, who do you know and what mm -hmm. are the social norms around you? And so these are really important things. And so uh, the idea is that from an evolutionary perspective, um, politics seems to be about um, well, what do I think? It's about policies. It's about facts. It's about, so I sort of have these political beliefs and I think um, X, Y, and Z, and I think the other side is wrong. Um, and I'm using facts to determine what I think is true. From an evolutionary perspective, the idea is that that's probably to some degree all wrong uh, in both sides, um, which is just basically that um, probably a lot of our political beliefs are just ways to coordinate with people around alliances. So um, who are the people that I want to um, uh, signal that I'm uh, I'm kind of like? Um, mm -hmm. What kind of person am I? Um, and uh, those are the sort of motivations. We're not aware of it. And we're certainly, uh, and this happens in everything, politics, science, whatever. Um, but the idea is that what the systems are actually looking at is, what are what are what is the content of my belief system that will allow me to become a member of the kind of identities or social groups that I want to be a member of? Um, and it's not to say that there isn't substance to political beliefs, but it's just uh, uh, um, an idea that uh, why somebody finds something like abortion, for example, appalling, and why somebody else uh, doesn't see a problem with it. There's probably good individual reasons why why the why that's true, mm -hmm. um, and that's part of our evolved psychology, like people's experiences or how things get framed. But the reason why abortion becomes 
a political issue is not necessarily because there's any kind of rational basis for that being a policy issue per se, but rather it's because there's other people who want to get elected and they're throwing things against the wall and you basically find, well, what are things that motivate people who aren't motivated yet? Or what's something that roughly 50% of people agree with, other half 50% disagree with? And when you kind of throw these things up against the wall and see what sticks, nobody is really in charge of this process, but then you get these kind of partisan uh, political ideas. And so the view from evolutionary psychology is largely that, which is um, probably policy issues are largely orthogonal to the political content of debates. And uh, we're sort of these funny primates that uh, want to affiliate in a lot of our uh, opinions are really what we what what we've called epistemic coordination. It's sort of just a signal of who I'm coordinating with. Um, and again, it's not arbitrary. It doesn't mean people should give up their political convictions, um, but it does mean one should probably be suspicious of uh, of these uh, beliefs um, and uh, and always check that it's not an issue of well, is this something that's important to the in-group or the out-group that I care about, uh, but rather kind of sticking to the facts. And typically when people stick to the facts, whether they're an evolutionary psychologist or not, a lot of what they talk about is largely orthogonal to sort of partisan content. So in some sense, politics becomes uninterestingly coalitional um, uh, when you take an evolutionary approach. Um, it, it is interesting in the sense of it's a window into our coalitional nature, um, but I think the content of what gets talked about in politics is largely orthogonal to substantive issues. I don't think you need an evolutionary approach to, to, to come to that conclusion, but, uh, but it's one of the ways you can kind of come uh, to that conclusion. Yeah. Okay, so I, I mean, in terms of people's political beliefs, perhaps, we get a better understanding of why people hold certain beliefs by, uh, I mean, looking at social signaling, then trying to understand if those beliefs uh, are epistemically true or false. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I wouldn't want to put too much. I, I think the the way I would put it is there's sort of a, a there's a constant cauldron of generated ideas. And many of these are based on epistemic truths and false falsehoods, um, and many are not. Uh, and independent of whether or not they are, the ones that sort of get selected within this sort of regime of uh, the, the marketplace of ideas are those that afford coordination purposes, is, is the idea um, mm -hmm. in large part. And so... Uh, and so, so I would I would rather put it as it's not that they're not factual. It's just that whether it's factual or not is largely is less important than the that kind of um, coordination affordance or or whether or not a particular idea activates people or motivates them to do particular things. That's what's really determinative, especially in a large scale environment. Uh, modern social environment, um, determinative about what kinds of ideas are represented and talked about, particularly under the rubric of politics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I understand. So can we say that humans are a, a hierarchical species? Um, it depends what you mean by hierarchical, but I think you can uh, 
to at the risk of oversimplifying, I think you can say yes, but I think it's in a higher dimensional hierarchical space. So, so like something like baboons, they're sort of a unitary like dominance hierarchy, right? Yeah. Um, you know, like this this female is higher status than this one, and it determines all social interactions. Humans, because we're entrepreneurial in terms of our status and in terms of what alliances we have. So for an so if we were baboons, two or three of the lower status baboons would all get together and be like, we don't like this setup. Like let's change, let's change the rules. Like that's that's something that's characteristic of humans. And so what that means is that there certainly are dimensions of status, and particularly things like having access to resources, um, uh, protection, um, these things cluster together and certainly there's differences in all all levels of societies, um, modern, uh, ancestral, um, small scale, large scale in terms of access to resources and any kinds of uh, capital, whether it's embodied capital or social capital or resource um, transportable capital, like things like money or other things like that. Certainly that's a, a difference. Um, but because humans uh, can create and evaluate each other along various dimensions of status, I don't think uh, I don't think that it, it lines up as clearly in, as in the baboon case. So, for example, um, it might be that for purposes of science, like somebody has this much status, somebody else has this much status, but you go outside and you go to a bar, it might shift quite a bit, you know. Or like, you know, high school uh, or or school is a perfect example of this, where somebody's good at maybe at sports, but another person's socially more adept. Somebody else has like better cultural knowledge, and so. Um, I think there's always an appetite to um, status differentiate yourself, um, which sounds cynical, but it's really just sort of like what 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 can I afford or, or give to people? Like what what is something useful that I can do? And there's always a search for that and differentiation of that, um, and uh, and that motivation combined with people wanting to be in alliances or groups with a little bit more status than everybody else can sort of lead to a dynamic that you could call hierarchical. I wouldn't want to argue that hierarchy as an emergent outcome, particularly stratified and static, is inevitable. Um, but but you can see where the, the sort of evolved mental software, um, when it's running, is producing kinds of hierarchy that's kind of always going at every scale. Um, yeah. Okay, so uh, just one last question and regarding hierarchy. Um, how did leadership in human societies evolve? Yeah, um, so it's a broad question, but I can talk a little bit about some of my recent work on that. So the, the broader answer is that leadership seems to be uh, an evolved solution to solving coordination problems. So basically, um, uh, in, a, in a system where there's sort of a manager, a high-level manager and a low-level worker, the reason why companies have that is because uh, the worker needs the time and energy to actually do the detailed work. The manager ostensibly needs uh, the time and energy to sort of um, connect lots of different workers, 
coordinate their actions so they're not spending their time like making the chair. They're also uh, they're coordinating the person who makes the chair in an automobile case with the person who's making the engine. So there's somebody has to coordinate the detailed level work, and there's somebody else who even higher up has to um, talk about well, what kind of car do people want, et cetera, et cetera. So there's different scales of in the hierarchy. We're coming back to this idea of hierarchy, um, and so the idea is that leadership solves this coordination problem or this integration problem of uh, having low-level um, contributions of what to do combined with sort of what to, how to do it, with the, which is the other, other level. So, um, so sort of leadership is the argument, well, here's what we should do, how we should do it, and followership is evaluating those proposals and then actually doing this stuff. Um, and uh, and so that's the idea that leadership solves coordination problems because it's hard to coordinate lots of individual people, and a leadership role is something that can can achieve that very thing. And if you leave people to their own devices, not in a coordinated way, they're not as effective as when they are so coordinated. So that's the the core idea, and this is a general idea from from evolutionary approach that you find this kind of coordination even in small scale societies where it's things like we should defend the village, we should go to this watering hole, you even hole, you should find this, you even find this in animals. There's versions of leadership and followership in non-human animals. Um, my idea in particular in for the evolution of leadership is that we typically think of leaders and followers as types of people. And um, I wrote a paper which basically did a task analysis of what are the information processing problems of solving coordination problems. And one of the problems is even what coordination problems should even be talked about. So the idea is that um, uh, research on leadership has often started from the perspective of leaders direct the group. But my argument is that, well, the group doesn't exist yet the group has to be created and what creates the group are representations. This is sort of like the political thing we talked about earlier. And so the idea is that one part of leadership is just the creation of proposals. So like we should pretend to be pirates when, when it's kids, right? Or we should attack the other group uh, on the other side or we should go to this well. There's hundreds of thousands of these kinds of proposals. And the idea is that leadership is an information processing role to look into the world and say, what kinds of things can be proposed? Followership is the evaluation of those proposals. And part of what goes into the evaluation is, does the thing proposed help me? What does it sociologically do for me? And this gets back to what we talked about for politics. And so this view is that many people might be leaders and followers in the same moment. So at one moment, you might be proposing something and the next moment, you're hearing the proposal from somebody else. And so the idea is less that leadership and followership are kinds of people, but it's more like a conversation where there are roles that can switch, like listening and hearing in a conversation. That's a much better metaphor, I think. And so the idea is that part of what leadership and followership, uh, why it evolved and why it exists, is it solves something I call the meta-coordination problem, which is how to coordinate about what to coordinate about, which is that uh, there's lots of possible coordination things that we could all get together and do X, Y, and Z. There's an infinite set of those things, but only an infinitesimally small number of those things are things other people would want to do. So there's a ton of stuff I would like to do and get a bunch of people to, to go do, but I can't know exactly what other people would be also willing to do. 
So the idea is that a certain level, even if I can kind of guess what those things might be, I can guess what those might be. At a certain level, you have to sort of throw ideas out and then just see what sticks. This is basically Twitter. I, I wrote the paper before I joined Twitter, but then I realized what I was describing is basically Twitter. People are just throwing out ideas. And to some degree, you can predict, but not always, some things just hit, right? And they're just, they re, they're resonating with people. And those are the things that then can become coordination devices. And so it's a within generation selective regime for allowing agents to explore the possibility space of those coordination efforts that a sufficient number of other people would be willing to, um, willing to do. So it might be something like, it can be really terrible things, like here's, a, here's an outgroup I think we should all attack. And then you say it, somebody says it and nobody responds. But then you tr they try something different and then enough people actually say, oh yeah, I agree, that should be our in-group, out-group carving. And then you, that's a coordination device, right? So, so it can be terrible, it's also great, it's how we do science, it's how we do evaluate art and um, literature and uh, it's the internet, generally speaking. Um, so it's good and bad, but basically the idea is that natural selection invented Twitter long ago, and it's the psychology of leadership and followership. And that's that's the idea. That's an additional argument for why those information processing roles uh, evolved. It also suggests that leadership and followership are quite a bit, there is a broader set of phenomena than uh, we typically think of. And so even when kids play, that they're sort of, uh, acting in front of a group of people, I think that that's basically leadership play. Um, and, and when they evaluate and are an audience, that's sort of followership play. And I think you can look at a lot of things that even people do on the internet as sort of leadership and followership play um, or activities. Um, uh, so that's the idea with the evolution of leadership and followership. Okay, great. So apart from Twitter, where can people find you or your work on the internet? Yeah, um, so uh, the Max Planck Institute for Human Development, um, uh, I have a web page there. Um, there's also my Google Scholar page. If you just type my name in, it's quite a long last name, but if you start with P-I-E-T-R-A-S-Z, by the time you get to Z, I'll come up on, on a Google search and then uh, my, uh, my home affiliation of the Max Planck Institute has all my papers in PDF form. Um, so that's a good place to start. Okay, so Dr. Pietraszewski, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show, and I hope to have you on again somewhere in the future. Thank you so much, Ricardo. Uh, really enjoyed uh, talking to you, and thank you so much for, for the interview. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. I would like to ask you to please consider supporting the channel. You will find links to Patreon and PayPal in the description box of this interview. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share the interview, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, and Blanchett, Perger Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Ernst Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Enrique Alenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Ruth Gervoz, Bo Weingarder, Rebecca Newberger, Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, 
Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, Jorge Pinha, Phil Cavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormer, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Hugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omri Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Librant, Oslin Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dimitri Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rosmani, Charlotte Please, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasevsky, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linhares, Lita Cosmides, Saima Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortes, my producers Isao Web, James Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanek, Dam Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Giddy, Sardos France and Thomas Trumbull, and my executive producers Michel Rogieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano and Jason Party. Thank you for all.